Welcome to Data Brunch with ICPSR. If you love data, this is going to be food for thought. I'm Dory. And I'm Anna. We're recording these episodes live from our remote offices, so please excuse any cameos from canine colleagues, kids in class, and other unexpected moments. Dory, can I just say... Oh, no. <laughs> there it is. Of course. I didn't know this was in here. Oh, my God. Sorry. There is our unexpected moment. <laughs> That's my daughter's school bill that moves us through the day. So sorry about that. Okay. Oh my god, I love it so much. Well, I I was just gonna say, Dory, I I just cannot believe in that last episode with Amber Aminra about the Dunham dance data. Holy moly, that part where the drums come in and it just it gave me chills. Same thing for me. Uh, I just remember listening to it and uh, just wanted to give a really huge shout out to our producer Scott Campbell for his great editing on that. And all of our other episodes too. Woo! Scott Campbell, good producer over here. All right, good stuff. Um, that was excellent. No, you are not cutting that, Scott Campbell. You are not cutting that. So today we will talk <laughs> to ICPSR's Trent Alexander about some little known and surprising stories from the census, as well as data in the news and more. So data and current events, you may have heard a recent NPR report that some Black Americans hesitate to get the COVID-19 vaccine in part because of their mistrust of the medical system due to the abuses of the Tuskegee study. And this is the infamous study officially titled Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. And the U.S. Public Health Service revealed publicly that study participants were misled without informed consent and that some men were allowed to suffer with syphilis for years, despite that penicillin was available. So in an article in the Quarterly Journal of Economics called Tuskegee and the Health of Black Men, authors Marcella Alson and Marianne Wanamaker showed that the revelation about the Tuskegee study and the medical mistrust that it engendered in Black Americans contributed to racial disparities in health and healthcare utilization. And in their research, they used lots of data from ICPSR, including the General Social Survey from 1972 to 2014, to look at measures of trust in doctors, um, also, mortality data available by race, age group, gender, and cause from the mortality detail files from 1968 to 1991, and annual data on the total number of non-federal active medical doctors by county from the Bureau of Health Professions Area Resource File, 1940 to 1990, um, and more. So if you're interested in reading the article or doing similar research, you can find out more about this in the ICPSR Bibliography of Data-Related Literature, which we will link to in the show notes. And speaking of current events, happy Women's History Month, Dory. Happy Women's History Month to you also, Anna, and to all of our listeners. There's one ICPSR data set that we'd like to highlight called the Women's Movement and Women's Policy Offices in Western Post-Industrial Democracies, 
from 1970 to 2001. And this was produced by the Research Network on Gender and Politics in the state, also known as RNGS, as part of a cross-national longitudinal study. We also wanna give a special shout out to ICPSR's director, Margaret Levenstein, who is heading into her fourth year as ICPSR's first female director. And now back to Anna for new and updated data. Thanks, Story. Um, first up, nursing homes have been in the national conversation recently. If you are interested in looking more into this topic, a newly available study at ICPSR is the Nursing Home Consumer Preferences in the United States 2017 and 2019. This is a survey of a national sample of individuals with recent nursing home experience, and it included in part an assessment of the quality of the nursing home. And another newly released study is called Improving the Accuracy and Fairness of Pretrial Release Decisions, a multi-site study of risk assessments implemented in four counties in Indiana. And it looked at, of course, improving the accuracy and fairness of pretrial release decisions. And one of the objectives of this study was to see if the use of pretrial risk assessments would improve the fairness of pretrial release decisions for racial minorities relative to practice as usual. And finally, we have an update to the Population Assessment of Tobacco and Health Study, also known as the PATH Study. And for background, the PATH Study was launched in 2011 to inform the Food and Drug Administration's regulatory activities under the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. And this study sampled over 150,000 mailing addresses across the United States to create a national sample of tobacco users and non-users. And there are updates to the restricted use and special collection restricted use files here. And all of these are available in our show notes. All right, next up, it is Dory and Trent. Take it away, Dory. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. We're really excited to talk to you today about a really cool project at ICPSR. Did you know that ICPSR has a connection to the Census Bureau? Today, we'll be talking about ICPSR's role in a massive data infrastructure project to link 1940 to 2020 decennial censuses. These data allow researchers to follow families across generations, and that's not all. Linkages to tax, health, and other information promote study of the effects of policies, environmental issues, and other contextual factors on later life and intergenerational outcomes. Imagine the stories these data could tell. And that brings us to our guest for today that we're thrilled to have with us, Trent Alexander, who is ICPSR's Associate Director and Research Professor. Hi, thanks for joining us, Trent. Thanks for having me. So we know that the census has many parts. Can you tell us more about the part of the census that you are talking with us about today? Sure. Um, the 
project I'm doing is linking the censuses from 1960 through 1990. Um, this builds on work that I had done at the Census Bureau before coming here and that others have done at the Census Bureau and, and outside the Census Bureau. Um, before I came here, we had uh, linked 1940 data forward to the 2000 census. And then people um, at University of Minnesota and actually at a couple of other places have linked all the prior censuses. So from 1850 through 1940, those are already linked and available. 1940 is linked forward to 2000, but it's everything in between there that no one has done because um, there are some really unique challenges to getting that work done. Um, and that's what my collaborator, Katie Genetic, and I um, are doing in this project. Um, I also want to acknowledge the really excellent uh, support and collaboration that I've gotten here at ICPSR for this work. Um, from Maggie Levenstein, the director of ICPSR, from the proposal development team, um, especially Lisa Kelly has been fantastic. And uh, David Bleckley is um, working very hard on this project. He's a uh, uh, really one of the best data analysts that I've worked with. He's just really uh, creative and um, hardworking on some of the thornier uh, data manipulation problems that we've encountered early in this work. And I'm just really grateful for the support that I've had here. So what are some of the great stories that you, uh, Data Brunch is all about, uh, you know, what makes these data projects great stories. So can you tell us what makes your work on this census linkage project a great story. It all started for me in a cave, this project. In uh, 2006, we, uh, I was at University of Minnesota at the time, and we were collaborating with the Census Bureau to recover the 1960 census, which at that time, um, there was, uh, the microdata was flawed. And microdata is like the person level records that analysts need to use. and the tapes that it was stored on uh, were degraded. So we, it could not be recovered and it was not permitted to be used because of its flaws. Um, so what we did at that time, uh, we got a grant from the National Inst Institutes of Health to rescan the original manuscripts, which were stored on microfilm and create a data set from them. And uh, they were stored in a cave in a little room called the ice cube. Um, because it had to be kept temperature controlled because microfilm, even though they're a great storage medium, they don't last forever. Um, and the, the cool temperature helps uh, make them last longer. So this was a cave managed by the National Archives in Lenexa, Kansas. It is an unfinished cave um, in many parts. So it's, it's pretty spectacular to think that that's where we store some of our most valuable records um, as a country. Uh, there's actually another one in Boyers, Pennsylvania. Uh, so they, they make good use of caves. It's a good, good way to store things if you can keep it dry. And um, that was when, so Katie, uh, my collaborator, and I both uh, started that project in 2006 when I was a postdoc and she was a graduate student and um, completed it. And we restored the 1960 census and those data, we made a new, uh, new public use data that is now available um, to everyone and new internal files that can be used within the Federal Statistical Research Data Centers. Um, that project was completed in uh, 2011, I believe. Is it possible that we can share some of those pictures with our, uh, with our listeners? Of course, no, taken with my own camera. You can, you can, you can have the pictures. <laughs> Thank you, it's just so fascinating. So uh, why 
did the data end up in caves? Um, caves really are a good place to store things. Um, it's acres and acres and acres of storage space. And it's not just microfilm. Um, there's plenty of paper records there and, and, and other files, books. Um, these were limestone caves, meaning that they're not, in this case, they're not natural caves. They were actually created uh, by people who were mining limestone, which means the walls are square and um, the height is standard. And um, it's really cheap storage. It's temperature controlled, you know, naturally, like any cave is. Um, they put in all kinds of ventilation shafts, and it's actually a really economical way to store records, like as long as you can keep the humidity where you want it. Um, so it's not particularly, you know, I think people, and definitely I imagine uh, bunkers and and things like that. It's not so much the security aspect of it being underground that makes it appealing to the National Archives. It's that it's super cheap. and for papers and microfilms is good enough. It's not an office for the most part. There are some people who work there, but largely it's just for storing things. So it's a good place to do that. Thank you. Now I really can't wait to see these pictures uh, so I can get the sci-fi images that I have out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some surprises that you have found? Well, you know what? Let me back up uh, because we're going to talk a lot about linking so for people who might not understand what that means, what does linked mean? What the linkage is doing is, let's say I filled out the 2020 census, which I did. It was great. And I also filled out the 2010 census. Um, it would be linking the Trent Alexander record from 2020 to the Trent Alexander record in 2010. So you can see how my life has changed over those 10 years. Where I lived and where I lived has changed and what I do, and that has changed too. Um, and doing this for the whole population. So linking all the people who we can over time from one census to, an to another over every census from 2020 back to 1850. So it's not just how did Trent Alexander's life change over every 10 year period. It's how my kids' lives changed, how my parents, their parents. So we can do not just person level change, but generational change can be studied with these data too. Thank you. I'll follow up with um, a question about uh, some of your work that I've seen that focuses on the Great Migration. And so tell us some of the ways that uh, linking can be used in the, uh, on that topic. Sure. Yeah. When I started that work, when um, well, actually my dissertation was on the Great Migration. So I've, it's been a topic I've been studying for a long time. But um, when I was at the Census Bureau and we had linked the 1940 data forward to the 2000 data, um, we made that data available to 10 research teams. It was still very much in a, a beta format. Um, and my team studied the Great Migration. So we used, and, and, and it was, it wasn't, you know, it's extremely useful data that a lot of people wanted, but it's not obvious that it would be that useful because it covers a 60-year span with nothing in between. Remember, that's what we're doing now. So we had we observed people in 1940 and then again in 2000. The Great Migration was really it, it's a great topic to study with those data um, because we could really look at intergenerational change among the migrants and their children. Which I mean, I can tell you, I've been studying the Great Migration uh, since the 1990s. 
That's the Holy Grail, and it's really, really hard to do. The best way historians have found to do it before this was to talk to people. And you can only talk to so many people. Um, you know, as we're having a conversation right now, this is taking time. You're going to have to listen to it and think about it later. And um, this is, you can do that on a, such a larger scale with data. Certainly not the richness that you can get by talking to people, but the scale is, is, is really valuable because um, it gives us a way to place all of the studies based on interviews and newspapers and, and classic historical sources that, that exist. Um, so what, what we did um, is, it, and as you may know, uh, the Great Migration was the movement north and west of African-Americans um, beginning during World War I and really continuing through uh, 1970. So it's it's mid 20th century migration out of the South. Um, we focused on the early period. Uh, we looked at migrants who had left the South and were living in the North or the West in 1940. So these are adults. They had moved, you know, as early as World War One, but even through the 20s and 30s. And in the North and West, when most of them had children by this point, so we're observing working age adults with children. Um, we then followed those children forward to the 2000 census. So we could see the long-term outcomes of the children of those who made the Great Migration. And just as importantly, we had a comparison group of children of African-Americans who did not make the Great Migration. That is those who stayed in the South. So we had these two cohorts of who are now retiring, retirement age adults in 2000. Um, some whose parents had made the move to the North and West, and some whose parents had not made those moves, and were able to compare their experiences um, and, and really see that the movement to the North did have long-term impacts, intergenerational impacts um, on those children where um, they had higher rates of, of um, education and home ownership, lower rates of poverty, um, and this was even, and again, because this is mass statistical data, we're able to do sort of statistical controls that people would typically do in studies like this, where we can say not only were the children of those migrants who moved north and west doing better by these conventional economic measures, um, but we could even control for the advantages that their parents had brought. Migrants often are more advantaged than those who stay in the point of origin just in terms of, of their own occupational and educational backgrounds. And that was true of those who made the Great Migration as well. Even controlling for those advantages that the parents had, the parents we observed in 1940, um, the children, their children were doing better in economic terms than the children of those who had remained in the South. That is fascinating. And um, you're really talking about my family, you know? Really? And Yeah, literally. I mean, my father, um, follow his elder siblings from Mississippi up to Detroit to work for Chrysler. And um, so half of my family, I would say, well, there's a portion of my family that's in Michigan, and then there's a large portion of my family that's still in Mississippi. And, and you can see the disparities clear as day um, from the ones who stayed and the ones who left. Um, interestingly enough, when my father retired um, in his senior years, he moved back home. So he um, he inherited his family's 
his parents' land, which is actually um, comes from the emancipation, you know. Um, and so he's living down there on that land. And then uh, that'll pass to my generation. Yep. We need to talk, Dory. That's that's fascinating. <laughs> There's, um, I mean, so that's, so even in the return, your family mm-hmm. is, 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 is part of a large scale return mm-hmm. migration yeah. that, um, yeah, you know, I mean, it, the great migration itself, I think was petering out by the seventies mm-hmm. and that's right when the return started to take over and it's, and it's still going. Actually, I, I just read, um, Charles Blow, New York times columnist has a new book mm-hmm. about ongoing black return migration. So mm-hmm. yeah, fascinating. I want to hear more Dory. <laughs> So where would these data be if they were not available right now at ICPSR? If we were not recovering these data and linking them, they simply would not be available to researchers. They would exist as images on microfilm in either a cave or in in an office in Indiana. So they would not be digital resources for people to do research with. How can our listeners find out more about this or contact you? Um, well, they can contact me here at ICPSR. Um, and I love to talk about this to anybody, person or group. Like, honestly, I, I this is one of my favorite topics. Um, if they want to just get data and don't want to talk to me, that's completely fine. Uh, a lot of it is already available in the Federal Statistical Research Data Centers. So that's a, uh, it's a, uh, an organization managed by the Census Bureau with 30 offices around the country, including one here in Ann Arbor. So reach out to them and uh, they have employees who can guide you through the application process, tell you what they have and guide you through the process of getting access. Thank you so much. This was fascinating. And I'm sure listeners are going to appreciate all the uh, history and work that's gone into making these census data available. Thank you. Thank you so much, Trent. That was fantastic. The caves, I kind of am sitting here in disbelief and also I can't wait to see all of these pictures. Um, So next in upcoming events, if you, by the way, if you are listening to this episode at a later date, you can always visit icpsr.umich.edu to see our current job listings and upcoming events. Um, But as of airtime today, we are hiring Our summer program has two teaching assistant positions open uh, for the introductory statistics courses and for statistics and quantitative methods courses. Applications for both are due on March 18th, 2021. And the summer program has two short workshops um, with some application deadlines to keep in mind. So first is the panel study of income dynamics, also known as PSID, They have a one-week workshop at this year's summer program. Applications for that are due April 16th, 2021. And a reminder that applications are due on March 22nd, 2021 for the free Institute for Research on Innovation and Science, frequently known as IRIS, workshop, um, which is called Joining the Data Revolution, Big Data in Education and Social Science Research. And instructions for applying for these workshops are in the show notes. 
And just another note, ICPSR summer program scholarship applications are due on March 29th. And finally, on April 1st, we will be hosting a webinar on Open ICPSR, which is ICPSR's self-publishing repository. And this webinar is free and open to the public. Please do share this widely, and you can find the registration information at icpsr.umich.edu. Thank you, Anna. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thanks for being with us. For links to data and everything else that we've talked about today, visit our show notes at icpsr.umich.edu. Coming up, we'll talk to some of the folks behind transgender-related data at ICPSR for the upcoming International Transgender Day of Visibility. If you aren't already, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you, as always, to the ICPSR membership. This podcast would not be possible without the ICPSR members. You can get in touch with us by visiting our website, icpsr.umich.edu, or emailing us at icpsr-podcast at umich.edu. I'm Anna. And I'm Dory. And thanks for joining us at ICPSR's Data Brunch.